From the recording studios of Reconstructing Judaism, welcome to Evolve, groundbreaking Jewish conversations. I swear, if I'm on my deathbed and anybody asks me what the secret of life is, I have two things that I want to say. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and we've got an interview for you today, a real treat, I think. Our guest is the writer John Backman, and we'll be discussing her essay, Scenes from the Q of LGBTQ+. In case you thought it was a slip, John's preferred pronouns are she and her. John's essay, more of a series of literary tragic comic vignettes, look at what it's like to live every day outside of the confines of he and she. In this piece, and and today in this episode, John, who, by the way, sometimes goes by Janelle, discusses gender identity and its fluidity. We get into some pretty serious stuff, and John discusses very personal issues, including a long struggle with depression and a lifelong quest to find true self, and does this in ways that are honest, profoundly articulate, and, I'll be honest, sometimes pretty funny. Before I introduce our guest and we get to the interview, reminder that All the essays on this show are available to read for free, no paywall here, on the Evolve website, which is evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. These essays are not required reading for the show, but we really do recommend checking them out to enhance your listening experience. All right, let's introduce our guests. First, to get it out of the way, John is our first podcast guest who doesn't identify as Jewish. She attends an Episcopalian church and is a Zen practitioner. Our executive producer, Rabbi Jacob Staub, had read one of John's pieces in a spiritual direction journal, reached out, and voila, we're fortunate to have her writing for Evolve and on as a guest on this show. John is a spiritual director, non-binary person, and quasi-hermit who writes about spirituality and postmodern life. She is the author of the book, Why can't we talk Christian wisdom on dialogue as a habit of the heart? Okay, John Backman, welcome to the show. We're we're so happy to have you on the Evolve Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations podcast. Thank you, Brian. It's great to be here. It's a a wonderfully written, rich essay, and and I'm excited to dive into it and and, and what, you know, the story behind it. So um, thank you. So we could we could start in so many places. I'm going to I'm going to start in in 2011, which is it's a year I don't remember particularly well because I had an infant infant at home and 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 um you mentioned it was it was a plane trip and an encounter with a TSA officer that um spurred you after years to to publicly change your pronouns and, and and assume a different gender identity than than what you had presented publicly. So what happened? It sounds like an eventful trip to the airport. Well, there there are two stories here. I probably should tell one of them um, as background because that's the one where uh, that was the real watershed uh, for me. And that's the one that happened in 2011. I have wrestled with mental health issues, especially depression, uh-huh. most of my, uh, pretty much all my adult mm-hmm. life. 
And I was having a particularly difficult time in the around January of 2011 and realized I needed to just bust out of my routine in some way, uh, in a way that would that would resolve the issues, at least temporarily. And I came up with several options. And the best one, for reasons that I'm not sure of, was to paint my toenails. Hmm. So I went and bought a bottle of navy blue, luscious navy blue nail polish and went up to my bedroom and started painting my toenails. And it was like someone had plugged me into an outlet and sent an electric current through my body. Um, It was the jolt of having not thought about or not repressed or, or I'm sorry, or repressed or fully realized something that was within me that now through the medium of nail polish was coming out in a rush. That's where I realized that I needed to be much more intentional about this, to pay attention, to put names to things, to understand it. That's one story. The airport happened a couple of years after that. Someone drove me to the airport. I started to get out of the car, realized I had forgotten to wear socks. This, for most people, would not be a big deal. But I had this luscious navy blue Mm. toenails, and I was going to have to expose them to the TSA and to everybody in the TSA. This was a frightening thought. It was also frightening because I couldn't tell by the location of the airport whether it was going to be safe thing to do. That's one of the problems with being either trans or in my case, gender non-binary, you really don't know where you're safe and you don't know where you'll be accepted. So I got to the TSA line. I put my laptop on the conveyor belt. I put my luggage on the conveyor belt and I took off my shoes and something happened that that electric current that I felt in 2011 came back. My head went up, my spine straightened, and I just glided forward. Somehow the, the girl that was inside me fully inhabited me. I was proud of who I was. I was walking straight into who I was. Um, and it was a moment of tremendous liberation, just being able to be me in that moment. I mean, we'll get more into spiritual issues throughout this conversation, but but we'll sort of plug your your you're both a Zen practitioner and and practice um, a progressive brand of, of, of Christianity. Um, was was this a spiritual moment for you, or is it was it really more about the self and in, in that in that time and place? It was absolutely a spiritual moment for me. Um, it, uh, just to give a little bit of a teaser for my spirituality, when I think in terms of God, I think in terms of the reality that's behind and permeates the cosmos, everything. I think of that reality more as a who 
than as a what. There feels like a personal element, but it is something that is both permeating and also slightly outside of. So in both of these instances, that electric current felt like it came from somewhere through the deepest part of me. Um, that sounds a little on the mystical side, and I suppose it has to because that's part of my spirituality, but it definitely had that sense of something uh, numinous that was happening to me. Well, I asked, so <laughs> thank you for that. Um, thank you for that powerful answer. Um, you, you wrote that um, you always felt some version of, of, of gender non-binary and maybe didn't have the language and you, you, you write about wearing, wearing dresses when you were, when you, when you were four. I mean, can you, can you talk a little bit about the process or the, the struggle that led up to the, the electric current moment? One of the things that interests me about this whole journey is that I engaged so much of it at a time when we had no language for this sort of thing. In fact, we had no language because we didn't even know there was anything to discuss. There was a binary, you were a girl, you were a boy, that's it, end of story. And it was determined purely by your physical appearance. So I actually had to go through the through and then look retrospectively at some of the signs that should have told me that something was was different. Uh, the the brief but ardent phase of wearing dresses at age four was one of them. The fact that all of my close friends from high school on were women was another one. Uh, there was a time during therapy when. I was stripping away layers of psychic dross, as we are all wont to do in therapy. And I suddenly came upon the idea that, wow, I really would like to be a woman. I want to be a woman. Um, I could have defined myself as non-binary, but again, at that point, there was no language. Um, and there's also the testimony of my wife, who I've now known for 45 years. And as I've grown into this, she often says that she has always known this about me. And in fact, it's a very big reason why she married me. She wanted somebody who was more sensitive, somebody who uh, had more of those feminine traits that I possess. Uh, so we have, we've discussed that there were all these little pieces of evidence that adding up, you would look at and say, oh, that's a non-binary person. Um, but we, but I couldn't come to that until the language and the reality of it really came into its own on a cultural level. Most of most of the people I've I've met who um, identify as gender non-binary prefer to use the pronouns they and them, and you specifically embraced she and her. Can you? Talk a little bit about that and 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 why it's why it's important. This was another um, electric current moment, as it as it were, um, and and that came from the depths of within me. But it was triggered by somebody else. 
I was attending a conference um, where, as conferences do, there were certain workshops to go to. And within one of the workshops, which was on gender identity, we broke out into we broke out into breakout groups, discussion groups. One woman started our discussion group by saying, let's go around, let's go around the group and each of us will say our name and the preferred pronouns that we would like. I hadn't thought about much about pronouns at that point. Uh, so I said what I usually said at that time. I said, hi, my name is John. And everybody pretty much thinks of me as he and him. And I kind of sort of look like a he and him. So I'm okay with that. One of the young women in the group was having none of that. She looked me right in the eye and said, but what do you want to be called? I had never really thought about what I wanted in that situation. But it took me about a second to realize that what I really wanted was she. I, I am not purely feminine. But I think she was the closest, most apt descriptor of the totality of who I am. And you, just to clarify, you 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 will you'll use um, the names John and Janelle interchangeably, or you mostly go by John, or I mostly go by John because that's the name I have established to the extent that I am known in the world. I am known mm -hmm. by John, and. Sure. I'm very aware that the world's at a place where this is still a very, very new thing, and it's hard for people to glom onto. One thing that I want to try to do is to make it easier for them to understand. And if that involves certain markers, uh, so if, if I look like a John and calling me John is more comfortable, I'm I'm very happy with that. The name Janelle is something that I tend to reserve. It shows up in my writing. I have told face-to-face uh, -face a few friends about it, but it is, it is a name that really resonates mm -hmm. more with me um, and within my writing than, than it does on an everyday level. Plus, I should also mention, just in case people don't realize, uh, a lot of people, I think, think non-binary hear non-binary and think trans sure and they're they're not really the same uh they're related but they're not really the same if i were if i were a trans woman i probably would go by janelle because that would be the expression of me being non-binary and not identifying exclusively male or exclusively female i have to come to a place where I can encompass both of those things. And that's why both of those names are still important to me. This is one of those questions with a big, with a big um, B-U-T, but, but in there. I don't mean to pry, but, you know, you, you referenced um, your, your wife of, of, of 45, um, 45 years, um, if, if I got the name, the number right, um, to the extent you feel comfortable. And, and I really mean that. Can you, can you, Talk about how you're you're um, adopting a a, a non-binary gender identity has you know what role that's or how that's impacted your your marriage. It has been a fascinating journey because I am fortunate enough to be married to a woman who is 
remarkably accepting of who I am. At the same time, she grew up with a fairly traditional sense of life's journey. Uh, it came from her white middle class, upper middle class upbringing, uh, where when she was growing up, she understood that the way you live is you go to college and you get out and you, and you build a career and you get married to a person of the opposite sex. This was after all the sixties, you know, we didn't know any better. Most of us didn't. And you produce two children and you have a really nice house in the suburbs. And that's pretty much the way it goes. She has very, very strong family ties. Many of her family are more conservative than that. And so, and so she grew up in that milieu. She inhaled that milieu just the way we all do uh, with the environments we grow up in. So the process of my ad advancing, so to speak, as a non-binary person, she has had to take that advancing and work with the conflict that it sometimes presented with her upbringing. Uh, like the wider culture, she experienced a lot of what I was trying to say, the way I tried to express my gender as very new and therefore as difficult. However, she has come to a place where she is largely accepting of a lot of my gender expression. At the same time, I am careful to accommodate her where I can. So there are certain aspects of my gender expression that don't bother her at all. There are certain aspects that she has had to learn to live with. There are certain aspects that I might be comfortable in, but I don't push it because, uh, yes, I'm non-binary and I want to express that, but I'm also part of my identity is that I am in this relationship and I want to maximize that. And I want to express that fully as well. Again, um, to the extent you feel comfortable and how, you know, how has it or has it impacted your relationship or how you relate to your adult child? My adult child has been wonderful about this. My adult child is gay. Uh, she is um, currently partnered with a wonderful young woman. And uh, she is, as she's in her mid thirties and at being in her mid thirties, she is light years ahead of my generation on this sort of thing. Um, and one of the things that she and I have both talked about is that in 50 years, the, none of this is going to be a struggle. In fact, in 50 years, Perhaps even some of the words I use to describe myself may be obsolete because nobody will care anymore. Um, it won't be a matter of, oh, I'm dating a non-binary person or I'm partnered with a, with a trans woman. It will be, I'm dating uh, Joe or I'm dating Joanne. Mm. And this is who they are and they're really cool. Um, she envisions that. She's very open in terms of this sort of thing. So, so it, it's been a... And in fact, she has been an encouragement at times when I have needed validation. So it's been a blessing to have her around. So looking forward 50 years, which you, you mentioned, um, it's a nice segue for me to ask, what do you, 
What do you hope for from society regarding gender identity? That's a great question. I don't know that we are ever going to get to a point where we don't need words and signals and markers of our identity, even if it's only to explain to ourselves who we are in the world. Um, so I, I can, if I went through life and I said, oh, I'm John, oh, I'm Janelle, and I'm a unique person, this is how I'm unique, I think terms like non-binary and gender fluid, um, or for that matter, mystical or Christian or Zen or things like that, help me articulate the richness of what's in me. Um, cause I can't do it without words. I'm a writer by nature. So I tend to think I can't do things without words. Um, so I think that, I think what will happen in 50 years or what I hope will happen is just that there is this vast cornucopia of human experience for which we have words for which we are free to use those words without judgment. And also to lay those words aside when they no longer help us. That's what I would like to say. Ultimately, I think we will get to a point where we are relating one-on-one -on -one to the person as they are in their totality uh, beyond the words and the signifiers of identity. But that's happening even now. I mean, when, when, once you get to know somebody really well, they, they don't become... They don't become, oh, that non-binary person. You know, they become Linda. It's Linda, and I know Linda. So I think that will be happening. But I, I would always like to see the option of having those words and those signifiers be available. There's, There's been a lot written about, you know, the narrow gender roles and expectations of, of mm. uh, males and females and and. The, the writer Peggy Orenstein has a, a new book, an Atlantic cover story, um, you know, arguing where where maybe a generation ago it was it was, you know, young girls who had a very circumscribed um, cultural expectations of what it meant to be a girl. Today, it's actually, you know, it's actually boys that that are that are really taught a very narrow path of what it means to be male. And, and I'm wondering if that resonates with you and 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 just to compound the question further there 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 have been you know there have been some some critics of the of the um the push to really identify um you know non cisgender identities in, in in young children saying this this just further you know erodes or 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 narrows the scope of what it means to be male and, 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 and female. So I, I know, I know, um, I just threw a whole bunch at you, but I'm wondering if it's, you know, if it's something you see as, as, as an issue. Well, I hear two questions in that. Let me. Yeah. It wasn't the most perfectly, uh, phrase, <laughs> phrase question, but, um, we're, we're all, we're all a, a work in progress. So. Yeah, we, we certainly are. Um, let me try to take those one at a time. Um, I read Peggy Orenstein's article in the Atlantic, uh, found it very disturbing. Um, in her, although I, I'm sure her picture was accurate of the, um, 
the narrow de definitions of masculinity that were that we continue to constrict young boys into, um, or young boys, older boys, younger men. Um, I would have hoped we would have been farther along the way by, by now. Um, I look back at my own experience and I wonder if we had had the vocabulary to do this when I was growing up, if there had been a wider spectrum of, of definitions of masculinity, would I have just said, oh, no, I'm a boy because you could be a boy this way, you could be a boy that way. Um, I would say to that, I don't know the answer to that. It's a great question. Uh, I suspect, however, the answer is no, because there is something in me, in my deepest self that, that hears that question and looks at that scenario and just quietly says, no, even if that were the case, um, when I look at all the things that make up who I am, the word man still would not fit as a, an apt descriptor. I think there is room for this, which I guess gets into the second question. People who are concerned about um, using these labels and acknowledging the existence of these other genders, uh, especially in young children. Um, this is a very difficult question as far as I can see it. I know parents of trans children. Uh, I know the care that they have taken in fostering their child's trans identity. Uh, I think it is so important to listen without judgment to the experience of young children and older children, as it is with anybody, to hear what they're saying. Uh, so the people that I know who, who have trans children have been very good at listening and accommodating. And, you know, if they're young Joe, says, you know what, I'm a, I'm a girl. I'm a girl inside. They've been very careful to listen to that and say, okay, you're a girl. Now let's take this one step at a time and see how it goes. All right, time out from this really engaging conversation. Hope you're enjoying this episode. You want others to experience this, this kind of conversation and explore these kind of issues? Please take a moment to give us a five-star rating or leave a review especially on uh, Apple Podcasts, where, where it really helps boost rankings and uh, visibility. Okay, while we have you, just another couple seconds of your time. If you'd like to support these groundbreaking conversations of, of Evolve on the podcast, on the website, in our web conversations, or, or even the curriculum that we're producing, um, you, can, you can support us. You can make a contribution to reconstructingjudaism.org slash evolve hyphen donate. That's reconstructingjudaism.org slash evolve hyphen donate. There's also a donate link in our show notes. Thanks for listening and thank you for your support. All right, now back to John Backman. I want to I wanna move into the direction of, of, of um, spirituality, but before I get there, it, um, you know, you sort of mentioned this. You 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 did mention the state of our our conver conversation and uncivil uncivil dialogue on a range of, of issues right now. So you're the author of a book. Why can't we talk? Christian wisdom on dialogue as a habit of the heart. Um, I mean, is there is there one 
lesson or, or, or one thing we can take away to improve um, the way we, we as, a, as a society, particularly as an American society, address uh, address the difficult issues? We just seem like we're really terrible at it right now. For me, the key is in that subtitle. Uh, dialogue is a habit of the heart. Um, one of my favorite things about the world of, of faith and spirituality is its goal and its capacity to transform people from the inside out. I have seen this in my own life. I have seen it in the lives of um, holy people, saints, sages, uh, etc., who have lived throughout the ages. And, and when I've read their stories, you can tell that they come out of life different and better people than when they went in. And it would, and what fueled that in so many cases was this inner transformation that came from God, the ultimate reality, what, whatever it is, but some sort of deep communion, communion with that. I think the challenge of bridging divides and resolving uh, the massive polarization that we are facing in today's society is a problem that requires solutions on many different fronts. Uh, I happen to tout the inner transformation bit because that's the part I know. Uh, and, I, and I have been observing the state of dialogue for many years, have seen many different things tried, some of which are very successful, some of which are not that successful, but I, it's very difficult for me to see people on, on a mass level overcoming polarization as a whole, as a habit, unless they are transformed in some way to have new habits. You write really, I found it really interesting how you wrote about um, your, your Buddhist and Zen practice and, and, and the goal of, of, of getting to the place of, of, of um, no permanent self as, you know, as you were struggling with identifying and expressing your truest self. So can you, can you walk us through that a little bit? Sure. I should qualify this at, at the outset. I, I'm starting to call myself an amateur Buddhist. <laughs> I don't want to make it sound as though I'm speaking for all Zen people uh, or anything even remotely like that. This is more my experiences filtered through Zen. Uh, but it does throw a bit of a monkey wrench into the whole idea of gender identity or identities of any kind. The way I understand the doctrine of no, no self it is the, the idea is that Buddhism does not subscribe to the idea that there is a permanent self or a permanent thing called the soul or in Hinduism, the Atman, uh, but rather the, the, what appears to be a self at any time is a totality of all the causes and the conditions and the background of one's life that has brought you to that point. So, as I say in the essay, I say things like, I am non-binary, and 
there's this little inner voice that pops up and says, who is this I you're talking about? <laughs> um, there's a story in which the Buddha was asked the question, is there a self or is there a no self? In both questions, the Buddha remains silent. And my understanding is that he remains silent because the, it was more that the question wasn't helpful. It didn't get you to the process of enlightenment. So he didn't answer whether there's a self or a no self. But, but certainly within Buddhism, you can't take the idea of a permanent self very far. So if I can't say that I am non-binary, what does that mean? I think to me, it means that this gender identity expresses something important about who I am, but like everything else in life, I have to hold it lightly because everything is ultimately permanent. And today, do you identify with a particular uh, Christian tradition or denomination, or is it more encompassing? I go to an Episcopal church, uh, and there are many, many things I like about the Episcopal church. The liturgy is beautiful. Um, the opportunity to take communion every week is beautiful. Uh, it is very meaningful to me. Um, beyond that, I, I have been actively involved in monasticism and mysticism for quite a while. Um, I also call myself a quasi hermit. <laughs> uh, and part of the reason for that is, is I think the word hermit has accumulated a whole lot of cultural baggage. Um, people hear hermit and they think some guy who's out in the middle of the desert sitting on a, on a flagpole for 50 years and never getting off that sort of thing. That is an actual story, by the way. But um, I still think of Alec Guinness from the original Star Wars, but you know Obi Wan Kenobi. <laughs> but yes, he'd be very good at that. I mean, I mean that's a very good picture of uh, some of that cultural baggage. What it means in my in my life is that um, I, because I've run a business out of my home, I've always lived on my own for a lot of my time for of each day. At this point in my life, I am living much more intentionally into that solitude. I am writing and engaging in spiritual direction and engaging in spiritual practice um, in the context of being alone and listening to the silence that happens in that solitude and letting it bubble up and see what emerges in terms of wisdom and insight and then communicating that out into the world. All right, so fair warning, two-part question, but they should be clear. <laughs> Can you explain a little bit of what spiritual direction is? And I'm wondering if having struggled with both gender identity and depression, if that's made you a more empathetic, perceptive spiritual director. Those are great questions. Uh, spiritual direction looks a lot like therapy. It, if you look at it from the outside, you have, the, on an individual level, you have two people sitting in a room uh, and you are talking about one of those people's uh, lives and the issues in their lives. Uh, the, the big difference is in therapy, you are, are digging through 
layers of that person's psyche in order to help them uh, gain insight into issues, solve problems, etc. In spiritual direction, you are doing similar things, but your goal is to listen with them to where God might be present in their life and to what God might be saying in terms of the direction of their life. So, for example, um, I see as a spiritual directee, a um, evangelical Christian who has had a very, very vibrant sense of the presence of God and a very vibrant sense of God giving her messages. That's not everybody's cup of tea, but this is the way she communicates and it is born fruit in her life. She's a good person and makes a difference in the world. Um, she came to me because uh, she had reached a point in her life where over the course of the past year, God had, she had stopped hearing these messages. She had stopped understanding any presence of God in her life and she wanted to work on that. So we would meet and discuss the ways in which God had spoken to her in the past, what might be keeping her from hearing God in the present, what she might do to hear God in the present. Um, and it, it, thankfully, it actually worked out. And that line of communication is much more open now for her. Um, obviously, listeners may interpret that in any way they want, but that is within her worldview, within her life, that's the way it has worked out and it has borne fruit as she has moved forward. So it's, it's that sort of thing. I don't know to what extent... Um, my gender identity or my depression have um, contributed to the spiritual direction. I think maybe some of the things at the root of both uh, have contributed more. One is I tend to be very, very hypersensitive to people and to what they're trying to communicate and to stimuli in general and, 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 whatever's in the air. So if there, I can walk into a group of say friends or relatives and all of a sudden I realize I'm getting really depressed and I have no reason why. And I find out later that there is all kinds of interpersonal tension in that group. And I'm just, I have no filter for that. So I'm just sort of sucking it all up. Um, but what that means is it, it gives me an ability to listen. Um, and to listen without preconception to the person in front of me so that I can, I can help ask questions that will help them unlock what might be happening in their lives. I don't, I don't know about you. My, my brain always seems to conjure uh, imaginations of, 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 of offering my, my younger self advice. So I'm wondering, like, since some of these realizations came to you somewhat later in life, if if you could mm -hmm. go, I'm wondering if if you could go back and talk to your childhood self or young or young adult self. Is there is there clear advice you would you wish you could give? <laughs> I think of the advice that. Um, in my own personal mysterious way, I seem to hear from God or I perceive myself hearing from God. And that is, you're fine. 
you're just wow. I didn't have any sense of that growing up whatsoever um, in any aspect of my life, really, mm. uh, for a whole variety of reasons. And there is something so therapeutic about returning to that thought as a touchstone. You're just fine. Um, I think the other thing that I wish I had thought had known before um, is the thing that I swear if I'm on my deathbed and anybody asks me what the secret of life is, I have two things that I want to say. One is seek God, however you understand God. And the other one is pay attention. Um, because I think once, especially once we start paying attention, so many other things fall into line because I think we start seeing things the way they are rather than the way we want them or the way people tell them they are. We are. They are. I mean, pay attention to what? Because my sense is you don't mean pay attention to the notifications on my on my smartphone. No, no, <laughs> no, I don't. Um, in my mind, that is one of the real benefits of Zen or of meditation in general is that it helps the mind set aside many of the preconceptions, many of the assumptions that we go through, that we live by, that we filter our experience through on a daily basis. And it enables us to see more clearly, to be able to accept stimuli as it is and perceive it for what it is, judgment. Uh, and I think that ability to peer into the core of our experience and be able to glean from it what it is teaching us is just priceless. So this really struck me. You wrote that this essay is about a feeling that's hard to describe. No, feeling's not right. Call it a state of being. Maybe by the end, I'll have words for it. So do, do you have words for it now? Or are, you, are you still reaching and struggling for the words for it? I think to some extent, I'm always going to struggle with the words for it. I'm going to come up with a long succession of words that will almost describe it or describe a piece of it. Um, and maybe not quite there. So in the SIA, I use the term state of being. Now, today I used deeply ingrained sense of self. Those are very close. They get to the depth of what I perceive as gender identity, the uh, how close it is to the core of who you are. Um, and then I want to say something about, for some reason, this particular aspect of the core you are, of who you are, has to be defined in terms of, and the only word I can think of is gender. So we're back to defining a word by using the word. Uh, so I think this is going to be a lifelong issue. Uh, just trying to continue to describe it. And I suspect it will be pretty much for all of us who define ourselves this way is um, we're going to continue to develop this vocabulary as time goes on. This conversation hasn't exactly been, been a laugh-a-thon. It's been, it's been <laughs> for the most part, pretty serious. But, but I can tell from your writing, you have a wonderfully developed sense of humor that that you deploy really effectively on the page and I'm, I'm just wondering what role you know 
a how you're able to laugh about because it sounds like you can about some serious things depression um you know gender identity and and if if humor has has played a role as a as a coping i guess as a coping mechanism i just can't stop laughing i <laughs> everything strikes me as funny and i don't mean that in an irreverent way i don't mean that i'm making fun of things uh it's just that um I think it goes back to one of the things that I have drawn from Zen and that is to hold everything lightly because there is so much we don't know about what we're doing. Um, and the ability to hold everything lightly means that at least for me, I can see all of the foibles and contradictions and wrinkles in our thinking and in the way we present ourselves. And it's hard not to laugh. I have a story if you'd like one. Sure. Audio is a storytelling format. So go, that's go ahead. Right. <laughs> I, one of my closest non-binary friends and colleagues, person that I just adore, has been through quite the odyssey with this person, with their gender identity. Um, this person was originally assigned female at birth, born physically female, has never, ever felt comfortable as identifying as a female. A few years ago, they took steps to move into a more non-binary gender expression. Among them were, they started using pronouns uh, like uh, manufactured pronouns like Z and here because they felt that that was the best expression of their gender at that point. Nobody got it. Nobody could use it. Everybody screwed them up. They finally decided, never mind. People are using the first person singular they now. I'm just going to use they and there. That's fine. I have known this person for for probably a good 10 years we talk on a regular basis. And when I talk to them, what pronoun do I use? She. Because I'm an idiot. And because we're all kind of that way. Um, as Fireside Theater so wonderfully said, we are all bozos on this bus. <laughs> and, oh, and by the way, on a regular basis, this person calls me him. So... And we look at each other and we laugh because what else can we do? Uh, I know people get very offended by this sort of thing sometimes. And I understand the sensitivity of it. And I want to honor that as much as I can. Um, but I also know that we have been, we have been ingrained with several millennia worth of cultural conditioning on this very topic. And we're not going to overcome it in a day. Um, so I might as well laugh at it while it's going on especially as it applies to myself, because I laugh at myself more than I laugh at probably anything else. Well, John Backman, this has been a really rich um, conversation. I know it's been deeply personal at times, but I think, I think your personal experience can um, shed light for a lot of people, whether, whether they're struggling to, to find their own gender identity or, or just seeking to better understand um, what, you know, what others are going through and be a more empathetic human. So I really, 
I really appreciate the uh, the uh, the conversation and, and and love your writing. So thank thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you, Brian. It has been an absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for listening to our interview with John Backman. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to read her essay, Scenes from the Queue of LGBTQ+. You might also want to check out her book, Why Can't We Talk? Christian Wisdom on Dialogue as a Habit of the Heart. You can also visit her website at www.dialogueventure.com. So, what did you think of today's episode? Were there any questions we forgot to uh, ask, other things you wanted to explore? We want to hear from you. Evolve is about meaningful conversation, and that includes you, our listener. So send us your questions, comments, feedbacks, whatever you got. This is my real, actual email. You can reach me directly at bschwartzman at reconstructingjudaism.org. We'll be back next month with another terrific episode. Evolve Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations is executive produced by Rabbi Jacob Staub and edited by Sam Walks. Our theme song, Ilufinu, was written by Rabbi Miriam Margols. This show is a production of Reconstructing Judaism. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and we'll see you next time.